Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Glad to hear. Glad to hear. My name is Kevin. I'm the pastor of Spiritual Formation. Um, and if you're ever interested in joining a team or a table or learning more about our trainings, I'm your guy. Feel free to send me those questions. But uh, Pastor Dave had the opportunity to, to share with another church this morning, so you're stuck with me. Uh, hopefully that's not a bad thing. I, I was able to teach uh, next before this, so I feel especially bad for those that were on next. You got to hear me twice, so that's kind of a, maybe it's a good thing, I don't know. But uh, this morning, we're going to continue our Missio Day series. And if you're unfamiliar with what Missio Day means, it's essentially, or it is, I shouldn't say essentially, it actually is a Latin term for the mission of God. And we've learned that as followers of Christ, we share in his mission to invite others into a relationship with him, to share his love, to share the good news, and to bring redemption to the whole world. And this morning, we're going to look at discipleship or spiritual formation and how that connects to mission. Now, if discipleship or spiritual formation are new words to you, they simply mean the process by which we grow in our relationship with God. Discipleship is more the, the doing of that, I guess, if you could differentiate them. Spiritual formation is more the strategy to the doing, but they can be used interchangeably as well. But that leads me to a question this morning. Have you ever felt stuck spiritually? Yes, everyone I think can say yes to that question, myself included. You know, you feel stuck to where you can't keep up with all the good Christian things that you should do. And not that you're a bad Christian or even a bad person, but between, you know, getting up for work on time or getting to school, getting your kids ready, uh, you know, going to work, doing all those things, feeding yourself, doing the chores, doing your finances, doing just everything that we have to do to, to keep ourselves alive— it feels like there's not enough time to do the things that we should do as a follower of Christ. And I think a reason for that is too often we live, this, we live a siloed or a compartmental life. What I mean by that is we have a compartment for discipleship. We have a compartment for work, a compartment for life, a compartment for our finances, for what we do here at church and we tend to treat these different compartments as checklists. Check, I, I, got, did my, I went to work today. Check, I got my family responsibilities done. Check, I did my church stuff. And we treat them like checklists. And here's the problem is when we do that, we forget to stop and recognize that all these areas that make up who we are, they're not meant to be separate. They're meant to be interconnected because the engine that powers them is the same. And that engine can and should be God's mission. It reminds me of a time, I think, shortly after my wife and I got married, we had a spare bedroom that we wanted to turn into an office because we were like, hey, you know, we work from home a lot. It'd be nice to have a place just to do some stuff at a desk. And so we went to go to Walmart to find just a cheap desk that looked nice but also didn't, you know, wasn't too expensive. And we found one, brought it home, and it was my job then to put this desk together. Who here loves putting together cheap furniture? Like, there's nothing better than cheap furniture. The directions, they just always make sense. It's always so easy. There's never a problem. You never say words you shouldn't say in your head, or out loud even. But anyways, it was my job to put this desk together, and for the most part, I thought I was doing a good job. You know, there was a, a, a instructions to put together, like, the top of the desk. There was instructions for, like, the, the legs, the, found, the, the 
whatever you call it, the legs of the desk, I guess. And then there was a support beam that went on the back of the desk. You're like, this guy doesn't know what he's even talking about. How could he, how could he even do this? But anyways, you know, there was a different set of instructions for each different part. And I got to the very end, and it looked perfect. Everything was together, except there was one problem. That desk was wobbly. And I was like, come on. I, I followed every direction. I did every single thing. And so I went back to the one piece that I figured could be the problem. That was the, the support. There was like these stability bars or that would kind of held it together, kept it firm. And I said, it must be that. And so I flipped back and I realized I missed one little instruction. And you guys are like, it's obvious. You don't, you don't tighten it until the very end because that one little support beam supports the whole foundation. And what I did is I built that desk in compartments. I built it compartmentally, which led to a, a wobbly foundation. And that desk, I didn't realize how all the pieces came together to build something firm. And I think that desk, I think it now belongs to Pastor Olivia if she still keeps it. So Pastor Olivia, if you're here and you're hearing this, I apologize for my faulty work. If you want to throw it out, I'll help you do it. But if we live life compartmentally, or without seeing God's greater picture by which we should live, a picture that shows us that everything is more interconnected than we realize, we're going to feel unstable. So this morning, I want to help you find that stability, which comes from being a person whose life is characterized by true health, by wholeness, by intentionality in how we live, because it truly is centered around being with Jesus in every moment of our lives, which as our mission statement says, helps us to what? Become more like Jesus. Now this all sounds good, but what is, where, does, where does mission come into play? Well, the answer to that question is it's everything. Because God's mission is central to the life of a follower of Christ. Discipleship is simply aligning ourselves even more closely to God's mission. The life of a Christ follower is marked by mission. There are individuals who call themselves Christians, but whose lives look identical to those who aren't Christian. Outside of, they go to church on Sunday morning and maybe throughout the week. Now, for the sake of this message, I'm going to refer to a person who truly embraces the way of Jesus not simply as a Christian, but as a Christ follower, because the way they live their life stands apart from those around them, because they don't just identify with Christianity, but they are dedicated to being with Jesus and becoming like him. And as a result, they are living their lives missionally. So when someone begins to prioritize spiritual formation or discipleship in their life, you'll find out that mission naturally flows out of their life. It's not something they simply check off a list to do. And so this morning, I want to break down what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus because God's mission cannot become second nature if we aren't intentional about how we are being spiritually formed into the image of Christ. So if you would, we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark and we're going to look at three specific passages where Jesus talks about discipleship and what it looks like to, to live it out. And so first, we're going to look at Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to invite you to stand because Pastor Dave's been making a stand for the reading of the Word. But I think it's a wonderful way to honor God with our bodies 
as we read his, the words of Jesus. So let's read Mark 1, 16 through 18 together. It says this. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them and he said, Come and follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. And you'll see that later on he actually called some more people. But what I want to point out from this passage is it gives us a picture of what it means to follow Christ. So let's pray together this morning and then you can be seated. Father, we thank you for the example that you give in Scripture of what it means to truly follow after you. Help us this morning to examine our life and to determine what does it look like for us to take our next steps into reflecting our life after yours. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So the first thing that I want to point out about, or from this passage, is that while it seems like a unique situation, that Jesus would go out of his way to find and make, or to go and find some disciples, it was actually a pretty common occurrence within Jewish spirituality. I'm sure you're familiar with the term rabbi. It's simply a Hebrew term for my teacher or my master. And it was and it still is kind of the Jewish counterpart for what we would call a pastor for the Jewish faith. And during that day, it was common for a rabbi to have a Talmud or a Talmudim. And those are Hebrew words for disciple or the plural disciples. And Jewish individuals, they would seek out a rabbi who they could learn from. But it wasn't purely about instruction or being taught something, although that definitely happened. It was actually centered around a relationship because a Talmud would spend as much time as they could with their rabbi so that they could examine every part of their lives in order that they could model their own lives after that rabbi. It wasn't just teaching. It was, what did they do? What did they say? How did they do every part of their life? A well-known Jewish blessing during that time, and probably even today, is, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, would you follow your rabbi so closely that the dust that kicks up from his feet would be covered all over you because you're following him so closely wherever he goes? Now, as powerful as that statement is, it kind of gives me shivers because I'm just going to be honest. I don't like being dirty. Any other, like, people that don't like being dirty here? Like, if I'm just a little bit dirty, I need to, like, wash myself right away. Like, I love playing softball, but it's one of the biggest conundrums because I'm, you're dirty all the time playing softball. And it's like, I just want to go home and wash myself. So this, this that statement is cool, but I also don't like it because it just makes me go, oh, I need to take a shower. Um, so if there's anyone like me, we're going to meet in the prayer room and they can pray for us after service. But anyways, this concept of discipleship, it was common in that day. But like Jesus so often does, he gives it his own twist, which reflects the heart of God's kingdom. Because rather than disciples seeking him in hopes that he might accept them as an apprentice or a disciple or a follower, which is how things worked in the Jewish faith, Instead, he seeks out his own disciples and he freely invites them to come and follow him. This invitation is one that is central to the gospel. It's central to God's mission. Throughout all of history, God has an open invite 
for us to become his children, to come and follow him. Unlike other rabbis, Jesus doesn't have a stringent requirement or lofty expectations to accept his invitation. In fact, if you look at the, the Apostle Matthew, before he was an apostle or a disciple, he was a, a tax collector, which meant the cultural opinion of Matthew was pretty bad because Matthew, his job was to collect taxes on behalf of the corrupt Roman government. In addition to that, tax collectors were known for pocketing it a little bit extra for themselves in an unfair way. Some would say that today's telemarketers are actually descendants of these ancient tax collectors. You guys knew it was a joke. Good job. I wasn't sure if you catch it or not. It was definitely a joke. But the cultural opinion was the same. Yet Jesus invites Matthew, despite this impression, despite the things that he might have done that weren't necessarily the best, to become his follower with no strings attached other than simply to say yes and to follow after him. And I share that because Jesus' standards for accepting his invitation to become a disciple, it remains the same today. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have it all together. We just have to have a willing heart that says yes and then choose to follow after him. And this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I think one, of, of, of one pet peeve for me is when we as Christians look at non-Christians and we get bent out of shape when they say or do or think things that don't align with Christian ethic. They aren't Christian. Of course, they're going to view the world differently than we do. If we saw things the same way, we probably need to check ourselves. They have yet to experience the transforming power of Christ that influences their whole being. And so sometimes it can hold people to higher standards than Jesus held them to when he was making disciples. And if you're getting upset and you're wondering, well, Pastor Kevin, we've got to speak truth, that definitely comes into the picture. You know, closely after choosing to follow Christ, yes, there comes confession and repentance and following after him. Jesus held his disciples to a standard, but it begins with a genuine love, compassion, and invitation, and allowing the presence of Christ to change our lives. And we tend to forget that part. Now, to get back on track, once again, we're all invited to follow Christ regardless of who we are, what we've done, where we've been. But here's the thing. We have to decide to follow. Following Christ is not a one-time decision. It's a continual journey of following after him. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not saying that we have to earn God's grace. As freely as he invites us, so as freely does he give us his grace. Am I saying we need to say the sinner's prayer every single day or every time we mess up? No, I think repentance and confession, they're helpful practices but we aren't continually juggling our salvation with every decision or mistake or action that we make. But what I am saying is we can be a Christian, we can identify with Christianity, but we can also not be an actual Christ follower. In other words, we can receive his salvation, his grace, his love, his transformation, but not take the steps to experience them more fully. I kind of think of it like a visit to the eye doctor. If you go to the eye doctor and you're like me and you realize your vision is not good, you wouldn't know that because I got contacts in, but you go to the eye doctor and you realize, hey, you need contacts, you need uh, glasses. 
And you basically you sit in that big chair, and they put that giant, like, I don't know what it's called, but that thing in front of your eyes, and they give you different options. They go to you, like, option one or option two, and one of them is clear, one of them is blurry. You know what I'm talking about? But you go to the eye doctor, and you, and you sit in that chair, and they, they show you different things of what your, your vision could be, what it could look like. And this kind of reminds me of what it's like to first follow Christ, because he catches our attention. We feel his love. He transforms our life. And he gives us a glimpse into what his abundant life looks like. He gives us a glimpse into the life that he wants us to live. He puts the proposed prescription in front of our eyes and he invites us to see. But even though we need glasses, in this illustration we all need glasses, okay? Just making that clear. Even though we need glasses, it's still on us to go and buy them. It's still on us to put the glasses on and see as he wants us to see. And this may sound silly, but I think too many Christians or too many people who call themselves Christians aren't wearing their glasses. What do I mean? We choose to follow Jesus. We see the purpose and the reason for following him, but we don't actually prioritize having his perspective on how to view life, which comes to not just calling ourselves a Christian, but actually following after him. It's like going through our day without wearing our glasses or walking blind, walking without clarity. He wants us to see clearly the world around us, to see his mission. So discipleship, it isn't so much about sinning less, but more about becoming like Jesus, which means seeing with his kingdom perspective and stepping into the abundant life that he has for us. John Mark Comer, he points out that the word disciple— it's a noun, it's not a verb. And so being a disciple is not simply what we do, although we do do it. I just said do do, oops. It's actually, it's who we are. Discipleship is who we are. And so to get to that place where we get, to get to that place, we must become covered in the dust of our rabbi. And there's one other crucial thing I want to point out from this passage that demonstrates the end goal of discipleship. Immediately after Jesus says, come and follow me, he says, I will show you how to fish for people. Do you see it? The fruit of discipleship is mission. Fishing for people simply means that we become a disciple who makes other disciples. That we invite other people, just as Christ has invited us, into the life of true love, joy, peace, and all the other fruit of the Spirit that God wants us to have. And it starts with an invite into what God has also invited us into. And the invite can come through many methods, right? It can come through a verbal invite, like Jesus did to his first disciples. Or it could come through relationship or how we live our life. Jesus made many disciples simply by how he lived his life. He loved well, he showed compassion, he offered hope. And through those demonstrations, many chose to follow him. And so for us, we look to Christ and it's the same. But I will say this. If we invite someone with our words, we must back up our words by how we live our lives. And if we live, or if we respond by how we live our life, we must be willing to also use our words and explain the purpose behind how we live. Do we have to be perfect? Of course not. But the most effective invite 
is one that is both lived and spoken. And we see that in Jesus himself, and so we as his disciples want to do the same. So to summarize discipleship as we see here in Mark 1, Jesus invites us, we choose to follow, and it's demonstrated through mission. Now before we move on, I want to point something out really quick to make sure we have our priorities straight. You see, the result of discipleship is a missional life. You cannot start with a missional life. We become missional as we become disciples. And so I kind of identify it as having, there's, there's three layers to discipleship. And the first is Christ, the second is us, and third is others. So what I mean by that is, discipleship, it begins with us putting our attention onto Christ. We are becoming a disciple because we genuinely love him. We want to be with him. It's not necessarily for ourselves, although there's definitely that component to it, but it begins with us giving our all to Christ. And as we give our all to Christ, it begins to permeate our lives. We begin to think differently, see the world differently, respond to others differently. And as it permeates our life, it then flows out to those around us, to our communities, to the world. And so discipleship, it's focused on Christ, it permeates our life, and it's for the sake of the world. Now, as great as that sounds, we know it's not easy. I mean, just look at the example of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. I want to read to you this interaction real fast. Verse 17, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't testify falsely, don't cheat, honor your mother and father. The man looked at Jesus and he said, Teacher, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, and don't forget this part right here, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Jesus said this, There is one thing you still haven't done. Go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad. He had many possessions. I share this passage because, while we may not realize it, we share a lot in common with this rich young man. Yes, we may not consider ourselves rich or a ruler, although let's be honest, if, if, rich, if being too rich was our problem, it sounds pretty good. I'm just kidding. Jesus would tell us to give it all away. But I want to share two quick things that we have in common with this man. And the first is that here in the U.S., we are wealthier than most. When we define rich in this passage with modern or with Western eyes, we're missing out on what God is, act, or what, what, what is fully happening in this passage. Because yes, this man was defined by his possessions in a way of most of us cannot realize or understand, but wealth in that day, it was not common. In fact, a blue-collar, middle-class demographic was also a minority, if it even existed. For most, you have been, would have been considered well-off if you simply just had consistent access to your basic necessities. You had a place to live, food to eat, for the most part, a job to get what you need, and you would share that within your family unit. Lavish living, having extra, having possessions, 
or even slightly lavish living was reserved for a few. In other words, the true comfort that we know today, it was not a norm in those days. Most of us would be considered rich in the eyes of Jesus and his disciples. Now, of course, that's due in part to our current time that we live in, but it's the shared trait that we have with the rich young man is that of our comfort. We don't understand what it truly means to rely on God for the most basic of necessities, and that's a blessing. But at the same time, there's a disconnect. So that's one thing we have in common. The second way, and this one I think applies to all of us, even if you can't relate to the first, is that it appears by his, this man's decision to walk away sadly that his possessions, they were a sort of idol that prevented him from truly following after Christ. And we all have something that we hold near and dear to our hearts that stand between us and truly giving our all to God. It could be wealth, it could be a hobby, it could be a habit, it could be something internally or emotionally that requires healing or a healthier perspective. And I don't really want to give specific examples because that's for you to examine your life. But at the same time, God isn't necessarily asking us to give up everything we enjoy. He's not asking us necessarily to give up our homes or everything that, our basic comforts. But I'm pretty sure we can all think of areas in our life that we know aren't the most healthy or can think of things that aren't worthy of our attention or that take up too much time that keep us from fully giving ourselves to Jesus, to devoting ourselves to him. To look back at the interaction of Jesus and this man, you can look at it as a challenge or almost an ultimatum. You know, maybe Jesus is jealous of all this stuff that he has. And he's saying, you can have your stuff or you can follow me. Take it or leave it, like he has to earn his invitation to follow. But I don't believe that's what Jesus is doing here. It's my belief that Jesus, he knows that this young man, his wealth, his possessions, they are held to an unhealthy pedestal. And despite his desires to be devoted to Jesus, this obsession to be rich, to have it all, is creating unhealthy patterns and priorities and habits in his life. Jesus isn't asking him to give these things up to prove himself, but to say, I want you to be healthy. And I know you can't say yes to following me and embrace everything that I have to offer if you can't lay your idol down. You're holding too much and you can't hold anything more. And I think sometimes we view God as requiring us to give something up in order to deserve his invite. But I want you to see that's not the case he asks us to lay things down when they're unhealthy, when they keep us from truly stepping into the abundant life that he has for us, when they keep us from truly becoming a disciple of him. The idols, the distractions, the habits, they keep us distanced from God, and they keep us from embracing the unconditional joy that he has for us. They're just simply momentary highs that leave us wanting more, and Jesus is the only thing that will truly sustain us. His invitation to come and follow is freely given. But we have to follow. I want to look at one more passage together. And I think it demonstrates in a beautiful way what it means to follow Christ. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus predicts his death to his disciples. And he says, a day is going to come when I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise from the dead in three days, three days later. 
Now, of course, this is pretty astonishing to the disciples because they don't fully understand what Jesus is saying. And Peter, he takes Jesus aside and he says, Peter, or he says, Jesus, what are you talking about? We don't want you to die. Like, don't say those things. Like, we want you to live. Which is probably a pretty rational response uh, until you know the end of the story like we do. But I want to read Mark 8, 34, because this is what Jesus says shortly after that encounter. Verse 34 says, He called the crowds to join his disciples, and he said, If anyone wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now this illustration, it's a strong one. Because the cross in that day, it referred to death. The Roman government would crucify criminals. They'd often carry their cross to the place where they were going to die. And so to be a disciple means being willing to give up anything for the sake of God's mission. Now, let me make one thing very clear. This passage, it's not a command for masochism. As Christians, we are not supposed to seek out suffering or persecution. It doesn't mean that dying for the sake of our faith is the pinnacle that we could ever attain to. For Mark, the suffering here in this passage it has a cause, but it also has a limit. The cause are the people the leaders, both religious and political, that oppose Jesus, the ones that eventually led Jesus to his death. The limit is the hope in Christ's imminent return. In other words, he's saying that suffering is a hope for future liberation. We don't choose to suffer, but if we have to, we do so with the hope that Christ will return and end all suffering. And thankfully today, we don't have to worry about death. We don't have to really worry about suffering or persecution. I think the most that we might face is embarrassment, you know, when someone has a bias towards Christians or thinks of us strange because of what we call ourselves as a Christ follower. You know, what we bear today doesn't compare to what they had to experience back then, where they did lose their lives, where their safety was in question, where even in places today where Christianity isn't accepted and it's dangerous to be a Christian, so what does this passage mean for us in our context? Well, as a disciple, we must be willing to give up anything for the sake of Christ. And once again, it's not necessarily our physical life, but it could be our idealized life. It may mean laying down our identity in order to embrace the identity that Jesus has for us as a follower of Christ. It means humbling ourselves, becoming less about us and more about God, which means seeing those around us and putting them first. If the music person could come and do their thing, that'd be great. I forgot to say that earlier. I don't know how to say it eloquently, I'm sorry. <laughs> it may mean being willing to lay our selfish desires down and embrace God's desire for our life. This may not make sense in relation to how our world perceives success, what the world says success is, because the world says, hey, be as successful as you can. Forget about anyone else. At the sake of others, be as great as you can be. But as this passage says, you can have it all. 
But what does having it all really mean when it's all said and done? In fact, when we lay our selfish desires down, our desires for fame, for fortune, for power, that is when we step into the life that he has for us, the abundant life of true joy, peace, and hope. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather say I fully experienced love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit at the end of my life than anything else. But here's the hard truth this morning, and I said it before, you can be a Christian, but not a Christ follower, not a disciple. And please hear me out. I'm not questioning whether anyone is following Jesus or not. What I'm hoping to demonstrate to you is that if we aren't willing to give our all to Him, once again, we might be a Christian, but we might not be following Him. We might not be a disciple. And if we aren't a disciple, we aren't living on mission. We aren't living his mission and we're missing out on the abundant life that he wants for us. And here's the irony of discipleship is that it's not focused on us, but yet we can't escape being influenced by it because discipleship causes us to be like Christ. And as I said earlier, to put on the glasses and see the world as God wants us to see. That's what it means to be a disciple. So where do we begin? Well, remember, discipleship, it's focused on Christ, it permeates our life, and it's for the sake of the world. So I have a, a three-step formative reaction that I see this taking place, okay? And the first one is that we focus our attention on Christ. And a question I have along with that is, He's giving you an invite. Will you accept it? Will you truly follow after him and cover yourself in the dust of your rabbi? Number two, we're transformed into his image. And it makes me wonder, like the rich young ruler, what stands in the way of our transformation? What are the things that we need to lay down? What are the things that we need to prioritize in order to fully be transformed into his image. And once again, it's not a one-time thing, it's a process. But what can we do to begin to become transformed? And number three, we influence our community. Who can you extend God's invite to? Friends, family, coworkers. Who can we begin to invite into the life that God has given so freely to us? a life of genuine love, joy, peace, and hope. And so my challenge for us all this morning, if I had to pick one, is to get covered in the dust of your rabbi. That we would spend so much time with him that the world would see it. Our words would be his, our actions would be like him. So let's get, I don't like this, but let's get dirty together. Let's get dusty. I got to go take a shower now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your example of what it means to be a follower of you. I pray that you'd help us to examine our lives and see what stands in the way of us truly following after you. Help us, Lord, to have the courage to lay those things down and make you our one and our sole priority. And Father, help us to begin to embrace your kingdom vision that we would see those around us with love, 
and that we would do our part to extend your invite as you've extended your invitation to us. We thank you for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.